The following audio is from Axe Church in Leander, Texas. More information about Axe is available at axechurchleander.com. Well, we are uh, continuing in our series, The Story. And uh, in the story, we're, we're, uh, we're going through the entire narrative of Scripture. And in many ways, the story we're looking at today is kind of the story of the Bible. It's, it's almost the, the central story, this idea of God delivering his people from that which oppresses them. That's what we're going to look at today. But before we get into our text, I just kind of want to summarize where we've come from. So first week we looked at God creates the world, everything good. Then humanity falls into sin and rebellion turns away from him. But God sets forth a plan of redemption to bring back his good creation. And he does that first by building a nation through calling a man named Abraham. And so he calls Abraham, and then last week we looked at one of Abraham's great-grandsons, Joseph, uh, finds a way to be the second most powerful person in Egypt. And so because of that, Joseph, Joseph's entire family moves to Egypt. And so now we're at a point in the story where it's been 350 years since uh, the people of Israel, uh, Abraham's family, have lived in Egypt. And after generation and generation, they've grown from just a family to an entire nation of people. And so what happens in Egypt is, is the Egyptians realize, holy cow, we have an entire nation living within our nation. They may rise against us. They may hurt us. So let's grab them first. And so they enslave the Israelite people. They oppress them and force them to do hard labor. And so here the Israelites are enslaved in Egypt. The people that God has called to be a blessing to the whole world, the nation that God's called to be a blessing to the whole world, is now enslaved. What we see in the story of the Exodus is that God hears their cries he says, hey man, my, my people are, are enslaved. He hears their cries, and so he calls a man to deliver them. And the man that he uses is Charlton Heston. <laughs> Sorry, no. It's Christian Bale. Um, see, keep up. Uh, no, it's, it's Moses, right? He calls Moses. And Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, let my people go, right? Pharaoh says, no. So God says, fine. He drops nine plagues on him. Bad news. Pharaoh still won't let his people go. And so God says, fine, 10th plague, ultimate plague. It's for real this time. And the final plague is the death of the firstborn son in every family in Egypt. The death of the firstborn son in every family in Egypt. And this is where we get to our text for today. In our text for today, God tells Moses to tell the people of Israel what they need to do in order to avoid that judgment falling on them. That there's one way that they can miss out on that. And so what we see today is the inauguration of what we call the Passover. The Passover, which is the meal that is, is central and celebrated in the Jewish faith to this day. It's, it's the core of, of who they are as a people. But what we also see in the Passover is it actually points to the renewed Passover. What we as Christians celebrate as the Lord's Supper. Which is our central act of worship. Uh, I don't know if you knew that, but, but that is. For, for Christians, the central act of worship is the Lord's Supper. And, uh, and so that's, that for me is really nice because like, it makes my job way easier because if I have a stinker of a sermon, no big deal. We still got communion, right? That's why we do it every week. It's an insurance policy. And um, so, so it's pretty hard to mess that up. And, and so that's, that's, but it's the crescendo. It's the point in worship where we say, hey, this is God meeting us here. This is God delivering us, offering us forgiveness. So it's really important. And so what's the big deal with Passover? Why is it so central to Jewish faith today? And what's the big deal with the Lord's Supper? Why do we say it's the central act of Christian worship today? Well, what we see in our text is three reasons why. Okay, three reasons. Substitution. Oh, I went too quick. Solidarity, substitution, sacrifice. Solidarity, 
substitution and sacrifice. And, and as I get started, uh, I do just want to say real quick that, that I'm indebted uh, to a pastor in New York City by the name of, of Timothy Keller for uh, really shaping my understanding on this topic and, and really helping me frame this teaching this morning. So I just want to give credit there where it's due. Not all these ideas are original to me. I know, I know. So uh, many thanks to him. Uh, so with that said, here we go, solidarity. Uh, so we said a few verses earlier, God says he's going to drop the 10th plague. It's going to be the death of the firstborn, and he's going to send what he calls the destroyer, the destroyer, this force in the universe that is going to kill every firstborn son in this entire country. This is really intense, right? It's really hardcore. And so we need to understand what God's doing here. And here's what he's doing. So we have to first understand how sin works. So we all understand that, that sin has natural consequences, right? There's just sort of natural judgment built into the world that if you live outside of God's commands, if you live outside of the way he's designed, things usually don't go that well. Usually, right? If you, let's say work is an idol for you and you're just a workaholic working crazy hours, what's gonna happen? Your body's gonna deteriorate. Your relationships are gonna deteriorate. It's just not gonna work out well for you, or say you're someone who, someone's wronged you and you just harbor onto bitterness and anger, well, then you become a cold and a distant person. See, whenever you live outside of God's law, whenever you live outside of his rules, there's kind of this natural consequence that's built into the fabric of the universe. But what's happening in this final plague is God is saying, no, 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 my judgment isn't just going to come in natural consequences. No, no, no. I'm going to bring about a judgment day type justice. I'm going I'm to move the world forward a few days. And for this one night to deliver my people, I'm going to bring forth a judgment day type justice. All the power of judgment day is landing in Egypt. The swift and clear judgment that God has on right and wrong is happening on this one night. So get ready, son. So what's the deal here, though? Like, why? Like, why is God's judgment happening in such a way that it is? Like, why is he killing the firstborn son? Well, in order to understand that, we got to take off some cultural blinders that we have. Uh, see, for us, we, we come to this text breathing air, swimming in water of 21st century Western Americans, right? And, and the air we breathe, the water we swim in, is individualism. It's individualism, right? And I'm not saying there's anything inherently wrong with that. I just think we need to acknowledge that, that we are far and away the most individualistic culture in the history of the world, right? And we, we all know this, right? Everybody knows you're responsible for your actions. You're responsible for what you do, or you do what makes you happy. It's all about the individual. But see, we need to understand in the ancient world, in the ancient Near East where our text takes place today, it wasn't about the individual. It was all about the family, it's all about the family. And so if someone in your family is really successful, the entire family is praised. If someone in your family is really shameful and does something bad, the entire family is shamed. It was all about the family. It was much less about the success of the individual, much more about the entire family. And in particular, in the ancient Near East, the entire hopes of the future of the family were on the firstborn son. That's the one who inherited all the family's stuff, money, land, possessions, whatever. It all rested on the firstborn son. He was the representative of the entire family. He was the one in whom their, their future hope and their present and their past rested on his shoulders. And so there's this inherent solidarity with families in ancient times. What happens to you happens to me. 
And so what God says here is that the destroyer is going to come through. The most powerful empire in the world, the destroyer is going to come through and it's going to execute judgment day justice on the one in whom an entire family's hopes rest. What that means is the firstborn son is going to pay the price for the sins of the whole family because they're in solidarity with one another. Firstborn son is going to pay the price for the sins of the whole family because they're in solidarity with one another. And I know this is hard for us to get as, as individualistic Americans, but we need to recognize that, that we probably have an unbalanced view of individual and collective responsibility. I think we could recognize that most cultures, most people throughout most time have a more balanced view of individual and, and collective responsibility. But we do get it to some degree, right? Like I remember uh, 10, 15 years ago, um, there, there was that horrific shooting at, at Columbine High School. And when that happened, people didn't just say, oh, those kids, they messed up, they did so bad. They said, where were the parents? Where was the family? Why didn't they step in there? And so, so we get this idea of family solidarity, uh, even though in the most individual, individualistic culture in the world. And so God says, hey, he looks at Egypt and he says, I'm going to bring judgment day justice on every family in Egypt, but there's one way out of it. And he tells them, he says, there's one way to avoid this tragic fate. And that's what we see in our text, the Passover meal. If y'all would look with me, we're going to start at verse 3. I'm going to skip a little bit, so if you have your Bible, I'll, I'll cue you in. But we'll start at verse 3. And God's talking, he says this, Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. I'm going to skip to verse 5. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you, on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. All right, so God says the most powerful force in the whole universe, the destroyer, is coming through, going to clean house, kill every firstborn son in Egypt. And the way to keep yourself safe, the way to prevent this horrific tragedy from happening to your family, is to kill a lamb and put its blood on your doorposts. What? Right? Like the most powerful force in the world is coming for my family, and I'm supposed to entrust my life to a woolly little lamb. Right? Fluffy and muffy. This is no good. This is no good. How does that work? What's the deal there? Well, here's how it works. The lamb is the substitute. The lamb is the substitute. The lamb gets what the son deserves. Lamb gets what the son deserves. See, this is speaking to a, a deep spiritual reality, and that's this, that there's a debt of sin that all families and all peoples across the world have. And because of that debt of sin, every single person deserves judgment from God. That's what this is speaking to. And so in this instance, when God's judgment come, when, when the debt needs to be paid, you either have a dead son 
or you have a dead lamb. Now, I realize that for modern people, as soon as I say that, that's at best confusing and at worst terribly offensive, right? We don't get that. We don't like it. It's bloody. It's messy. And I hear the objections, right? Like, oh, come on, Pastor, what do you mean? There's, there's a debt of sin and we're all under judgment? And I could hear someone say to me, listen, under judgment from who? Who's, who's moral standards? I follow my own moral standards, Pastor. So I can't be under anyone's judgment, okay? Well, let's follow that logic for a second, all right? Let's, we'll go postmodern for a second. I actually won an award for it in seminary. Uh, it really existed. I think they just all thought I was a heretic. But anyways, um, and so, so let's say that there aren't any universal standards. Let's throw those out. There's, there's no universal right or wrong. That's gone. Everybody just kind of decides what they want to do. They decide what's right. They decide what's wrong. There's no golden rule. There's no Ten Commandments. None of that. The only morality that exists is what you decide. Okay, so let's pretend this is the world. And now pretend that you spend your whole life with an invisible tape recorder around your neck. And this tape recorder only records the things you say other people should do. Only records the things you, tell, you say how people ought to live. Whenever you say, you shouldn't cut people off in traffic. You shouldn't cheat. You shouldn't lie. Whenever you say that, it records the moral bar that you've made for everyone else. And then let's say you die. You stand before God in judgment. And he takes your tape recorder and he rewinds it. And then he hits play. And he says, did you live up to your own moral standards? Guess what? Every single person will fail. We don't even keep our own moral standards, let alone the Ten Commandments, let alone the Golden Rule. No one lives up to moral standards. And some of you say, okay, okay, Pastor, I get that. You made your point. We're all morally flawed. But, but what's this whole deal with the debt of sin? The debt of sin. Why does a debt need to be paid? Have you ever wondered that? Have you ever been like, what, what is with, with all the, the blood and guts in the Bible like? Like, why can't God just forgive people? Why can't he just do that? Just say, oh, you're forgiven. It's good to go. He can't because there's no forgiveness without payment. There's no forgiveness without payment because the reality is when a real wrong is committed, when a real wrong is committed, a debt is created and someone has to pay it. Think about it like this. Think about it personally. So say there's someone who like really wrongs you and they're just really harsh. They do something really cruel to you. Now, when that happens, you can't just ignore it. You can't just wish it away. It's, it's there. It's sitting there. It happened. It's a big deal. It matters. And someone's got to pay for it. A debt's been created. And so you have two options there. Either you make the other person pay for it, right? And you say, and you, you seek revenge on them. You slander them. You, you do whatever it is you want to them until you feel that debt is paid. And what do we say? Until we're even, right? So we're even. And in that way, that person pays the debt. But another way that you could do if someone wrongs you, and I'd encourage this way, is you can forgive them. And that means whenever you want to hurt that person, you don't. Whenever you want to think bad thoughts about that person, you don't. Whenever you want to slander them, you don't. And after an amount of time, you're, you're at peace with them. You're okay. But who pays the debt there? You do. The person forgiving absorbs that debt. And so this is true personally, but it's also true in society. It's true sociologically, right? Like say there was a criminal who's like 100% guilty of some really heinous crime, like something really bad, like serial rape and murder, and he's like for sure guilty of it. 
Now, there's a debt created. And so either he gets locked up and does the time, pays the debt, or the judge says, man, he seems really sorry, uh, so I guess we'll just let him go free. Well, who pays the debt then? Society. The victims are told that they don't really matter. And then society uh, is told that it's okay to do this sort of thing, and so it continues to happen. So debt's paid either way. See, a serious wrong can't be forgiven without a payment. Serious wrong can't be forgiven without a payment. And, and we see, we, I think we'd all agree with that, right? And the thing is, we have skewed views of morality. Like, we're imperfect people, and yet we still understand that. Can you imagine how much more for God on a cosmic scale to understand that? Sin creates a debt. Every single person sits under God's judgment with a debt of sin. And so one of the things we see, though, that happens, and we see this happen in our text for today, is that that actually creates what I'd call a, a spiritual egalitarianism. That when we come before God, we're actually all on the same playing field. Right? Did you see this? Like, God says, I'm bringing Judgment Day justice on Egypt, the entire land. And so he says, the Egyptians, that makes sense, he brings judgment on them, right? They're idolaters, they're slave owners, like, they're, they're bad dudes, they're, they're not doing good things. But then you got the Israelites, man, they, they worship the true God, they're being oppressed, like, it's not good. And God says, doesn't matter. If you and yourself try to stand before me, you're in trouble. You can't do it. Doesn't matter if you're moral or immoral, religious, irreligious, doesn't matter. You in yourself cannot stand before me. You need a substitute. That's the lamb. That's the lamb. But I think about it and I'm like, how could a lamb possibly cover the, the, the debt of sin that we owe? And the reality is, it can't. This lamb is actually pointing to something greater. See, see, God delivers his people from physical slavery, from economic bondage, and, and sets them free this way. But they need something greater. They need a deeper deliverance. They need a greater substitute. They need a greater sacrifice. And so that's why 1,500 years later, there was a rabbi and his disciples that were celebrating the Passover. And this rabbi, this great teacher, stands up. You may know him as, as Jesus. And, and he's the host of this meal, and he takes the bread. And this bread was supposed to be called the, the bread of our affliction. And Jesus takes this bread, and he says, this bread is my body. In other words, this bread is my affliction. And then he took the cup of wine, and he said, this is my blood poured out for you for the forgiveness of your sins. And what I love is that if you read the Gospels in the New Testament, not a single one of them mentions a lamb being present at the Passover meal. And why is that? Because Jesus is the lamb, right? Because that night, Jesus is headed to the cross to be our substitute, to die for us, to be the great sacrifice for us. So Jesus is saying, listen, my death is the central act through which all of history is pointing. He's saying 1,500 years ago when your ancestors were delivered from Egypt to the lamb, that lamb wasn't enough. I'm the one that's enough. I'm the ultimate sacrifice. I'm the ultimate substitute. 
He's the one the first lamb was pointing to all along. He's the one that brings complete deliverance. And so do you see this? Right? Like Jesus, he puts himself in solidarity with the world. And he pays the debt that we owe. He's the ultimate substitute. He's the ultimate sacrifice. And we see throughout the New Testament that the first Christians, the early Christians, are just continually blown away by this reality. That when, when John the Baptist sees Jesus, he cries out, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Can't get over it. Behold, this is amazing, incredible. And then we see the other writers of the New Testament. Paul in Romans 3 says, We're justified by his grace as a gift to the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation, that's a, a substitute, a sacrifice by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. The author of Hebrews talks about Jesus as our substitute, as our propitiation. He says, therefore, he had, made, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. And the Apostle John in 1 John says, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. You see, Jesus pays the debt. He's the eternal substitute. He's the eternal sacrifice. And so let me be clear. There's some of you here this morning and you need to come to grips with this. That there's actually a debt of sin that you owe that you can't pay. That you need a substitute. You need someone to pay that debt. Someone in solidarity with you. Can I tell you the only person that can do that is Jesus. But can I tell you the good news is the only person that can do that is Jesus and he is glad to do it for you. Whoever you are, simply trusting in him. That's it. It's that simple. Trusting that he's your substitute, that he paid the price for you. That's it. I was talking with a friend of mine recently who's, uh, she's got just like a really rough past and, and uh, just some poor decisions early on and, and, uh, and just coming through a lot. And she worships with us once in a while, but I'm, she's not here today. Uh, I figured she wouldn't be, so I'll tell her story. Um, and, uh, and, and I was talking with her and she said, Gabe, listen, you know, I come to Acts once in a while and, and I think everyone at your church is like, is really nice and everything. She said, but I, I just... I just can't ever get myself to go. I can't ever get myself to be there because I just don't feel like I'm good enough. She said, when I'm there, I just feel like I'm not good enough to be at church. And I told her, I said, none of us are good enough to be here. That's the bottom line. None of us are good enough to come before God and call him our father. But we have one who is. Jesus is. And he says we're in solidarity with him. He says we're in with him. He's brought us in. He's our substitute. He's paid the price. And he's invited you to be a part of that. So man, I say to some of you today, won't you just trust in him? Won't you let him be your substitute? Let him pay your debt. Quit hanging on to it.
Trust in him. And then there's some of you here this morning who are Christians, and you say, Gabe, I get all this. I believe this. I believe Jesus paid my debt. And you say all this, but, but you don't behold him. You don't behold him like the New Testament writers did. You're not continually marveling and fascinated at this incredible reality. Why is that? Well, there's probably a few reasons, but one of the things we see in our text today is that the lamb, the Passover lamb, is meant to be eaten in community. God doesn't say, hey, uh, every person get a lamb. No, he says, families get a lamb, and if your family can't afford one, get together with another family, and you guys have a lamb together. The lamb is meant to be eaten in community, and see, Christianity is an eternal Passover meal. That for us as a church, it's a group of people gathered together, continually feasting on this amazing reality that we have an eternal lamb, that we have an eternal substitute, and we're working out the implications of that in our lives. And so that's why Sunday mornings matter. And that's why small groups matter. And that's why family devotions matter, because we eat the lamb together. And it's not easy to do that. We've talked about this already. In our culture, it's not easy to do that. We want to do anything but eat the lamb together, right? I was talking with a a friend of mine this week, and he shared with me an article he read uh, called The Top Five Reasons People Don't Go Back to Your Church. And he told me what the number one reason was. You know what it is? The beginning of worship, when I tell everyone to shake hands, people don't want to do that, so they don't come back to church. (laughs) That's number one. Number one, whoa, we're at church. Let's not get too personal, all right? We're only talking about spirituality here. Let's not get, let's not get too deep, right? Number one reason. And that's a problem. That's a problem. And so, so part of our call as, as the church is to say, all right, these parts of our culture that we happen to be in, we can participate in, we're great. And these parts we've got to challenge. And that's one of those things we've got to challenge because it's a problem. There's a a theologian who, who I love has influenced my preaching a lot, uh, John Wright, and he diagnoses this problem in his book, uh, Telling God's Story. He says this, Sunday after Sunday, week after week, year after year, even generation after generation, the same underlying narrative provided the interpretive horizon for reading and hearing the scriptures. The narrative of scripture was found in the order of salvation. Salvation, however, was not understood as individual participation within the biblical narrative that told how the God of creation made a promise to Abraham that was fulfilled in Jesus in order to bring about a witness in the life of the church as a foretaste of the new creation. Instead, salvation was limited to a story of the individual moving from sin to salvation to service in preparation for eternity in heaven. We find ourselves here at the bedrock of American Christianity, the eclipse of the biblical narrative. The Bible became the story of God saving the individual soul, not God the Father's reclamation of all of creation from sin and death through the Son by the power of the Spirit. So that's our hope for this series, is that as we look at the big pictures, we look at God's big story, is that we as a people find ourselves in that. That we as a people say, say, God, what would you have us do? And as individuals, we say, what's our role within that? but that God is called in us because we see that God delivers an entire nation through the blood of the Lamb, but he's delivered the entire world and his church in particular through the blood of his son, Jesus. 
And so let's behold the Lamb together. If y'all please pray with me. Lord Jesus, you are our substitute. You are our sacrifice. You're the one who paid the debt of sin that we all owe. For that, we're grateful. Without you, we can't come to God. Without you, we we are, are separated from him. But you paid the price for us, and we're so thankful that that you've called us to be yours, that you've called us to be in solidarity with you. And God, I pray for friends here who are wrestling with that, who your spirit's working on their heart and they're figuring out where they're at. God, I pray that you would lead them to put their trust in you. That they would find their hope and their faith and their life in you. God, I pray for our church, that we would eat the lamb together, that we'd celebrate you together, that we continually marvel at what you've done for us as a people. I pray this all in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Acts Church in Leander, Texas. Feel free to share this message with others and stay connected with us at actschurchleander.com.